listening to the Bible 126 show. We're in session five of the book of Judges. And last time we started on the topic of Gideon, which is in chapter six, seven, and eight. And we'll review the few verses we took of chapter seven last time as our way of reviewing uh, the situation that we're getting into. Gideon is an example of a man of faith, strangely enough, even though he has a, a rocky start. And faith is critical. We know from uh, Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it is impossible to please him, God. For he that cometh to God must first believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And faith means more than simply trusting God. It means seeking him and, and, and seeking to please him. Now, how did God reward his faith? Last time, we'll just review the first few verses of, of a dozen or so of chapter 7 as our way of reviewing last time. And uh, you remember Zerubbabel was the name that Joash, his father, gave him when he brought down Baal. So don't let that throw you. It's Gideon. Then Zerubbabel, who was Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose up early, pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand hath saved me. In other words, God is saying, You've got too many guys. You know, he's got, <laughs> he's, he's got a few thousand against 135,000, but it's too many. God wants to adjust the odds here a little bit. Why? So that Israel won't take credit for the victory. If you want some examples of that, remember the Six-Day War. Incredible victory over the, all the nations that attacked them. In six days, they, they established themselves. And even to this day, they brag about that, not recognizing who really did it. Who really did it? It wasn't Ariel Sharon, it wasn't Moshe Dayan, it wasn't any of those neat guys, great generals. It was the Lord, okay? But that's exactly what he's anticipating here. He doesn't want them to be able to take credit for it. So he tells Gideon, now go, therefore go and proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from the Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 22,000, and there remained 10,000. He had 32,000 guys ready to go to war against the Midianites who number 135,000. But those of you guys that are a little nervous about this, go home. We don't need you. Trim it down to 10,000, okay? Core group, huh? 10,000 verse 135. Lord said to Gideon, the people are yet too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will try, uh, try them for thee, and it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. But of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his tongue, as a dog lappeth, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. The number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. Now, this is God's way of adjusting the odds. The enemy has 135,000. The initial muster was 32,000. That was a four to one against them. But that was still too rich for God. So he got rid of the fearful of 22,000. So now he's down to 10,000, which is now bringing the odds down to roughly 14 to one, 13 and a half to one. But those that were not watchful when they went down to drink were 9,700. The attack force thus is reduced to how many? 300 people against how many? Anyone want to volunteer for duty like that? I don't think so. Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. 
So the people took victuals in their hand and, they, and their trumpets, and they sent all the rest of, every, uh, of Israel, every man unto his tent, and the retained th- those 300 men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. It came to pass that same night that the Lord said unto them, Rise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it unto thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go with Furah thy servant down to the host, and thou shalt hear what they say, and afterward shall thy hands be strengthened to go down unto the host." That's a prophecy, because that's about what's going to, just about ready to happen here. Then went he down with Fura, his uh, servant, to the outside of the armed men that were in the host. In other words, they sneaked down there to reconnoiter. The Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. They're in the Jezreel Valley, by the way. This is the same location of the Mount, uh, you know, we looked at earlier in the Judges, same place that Megiddo and all that takes place later. Anyway, and their camels were without number as the sand by the sea for the multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow. He said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian, and came into a tent, and smote it, that it fell, and overturned it, that the tent lay long, lay long. His fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel, for into his hand hath God delivered Midian and all the host. This loaf of barley bread, which is a disparaging kind of idiom, represents Gideon. You'd think Gideon would be insulted with that interpretation. Quite the contrary, he's, he's elated about it. And it was so that when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, that he worshipped and returned unto the host of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord hath delivered into your hand the host of Gideon. So Gideon took the dream, or certainly the interpretation of it, as a sign of God. The sign isn't, doesn't mean that the dream was supernatural necessarily. The point is that they are fearful. It reveals that they were even the troops there are fearful. They've heard the legends about this guy Gideon. He had a reputation larger than life from this one incident back there that we talked about earlier. Anyway, so now we're up to date where we're going to jump into what I like. I know what else to call it, but the strange battle. This is one of the strangest battles you'll read. As a professional military, and also one that's ministered in the Bible since I was a teenager, you, you can probably gather I have a library on both not only military battles, but also biblical battles. And uh, there are books written on that, by the way. Um, by people who are interested in that sort of thing. This is one of the strangest battles. And the Bible's full of strange battles. But this is one of the weirdest. I want you, you really got to get the visual. There's 135 trained marauders down there. These are people that make their living by marauding villages. Every year they come by and strip these guys. 135,000. And they had camels without number. There were, many knights were among the first to, to use camels in military, as military uh, weapon systems, so to speak. Gideon's got 300 guys. <laughs> You know, probably about the number that's in this audience. You guys ready to go against 135 armed professionals? I had a great, I heard a great comment the other day about professionals versus amateurs. Do you realize that Noah's Ark was built by amateurs and the Titanic was built by professionals? <laughs> Just thought I'd work that in. Gideon's faith. Because of Gideon's faith, we'll find three lessons in the rest of this chapter. God gave him wisdom to prepare the army. That's the next three verses. He gave him the courage to lead the army. That'll be verses 19 through 22. And then he gave him opportunity to enlarge the army. These other guys that were dismissed will be rallied for the mop-up, as you'll see. Because 300 people, can't. Even, there just isn't time or effort to kill them all if they stood a line. So they get, the, they get their buddies to help mop up. But let's, we're getting ahead of the story. Verse 16, chapter 7. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, 
And he put a trumpet in every man's hand. That's a shofar. The word actually in the, in the Hebrew is the shofar. With empty pitchers, or jars, if you will, earthen vessels, and lamps within the pitchers. And the word lamps there is lapid, which is an, a kindling torch. Visualize a torch, and when you put it in the, in the uh, pitcher or the jar, the flame dies down. There's not enough oxygen, but it's still smoldering. When you pull it out or break the jar, there's enough oxygen, it bursts and it comes back to a burning torch. You get the picture? It's a little confusing unless you can visualize a smoldering ember type of thing stuck in this jar. You with me? So while they're carrying it, it doesn't give off much light. Maybe a few little red sparks or something. But when you pull it out where there's enough oxygen, it bursts into flame. You get the picture? Okay. Um, moving on. He said to them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, and it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp and say, The sword of the Lord and Idion. See, Gideon is setting himself as the example, and that's, uh, that's, that's good leadership. There are no committees, no dialogues, no discussions. By this point, Gideon knows God is with him, and he's showing the courage to, to lead this group. He's come a long way. You may recall last time, he, God found him hiding in a wine press, and for good reason. So he's no longer asking if or why, where. He's, he's a new creation, as Paul might put it in Second. Corinthians 5.17. So God took a doubter and made a general out of him. He's a doubting farmer that's now a general. So Gideon, the hundred men that were, uh, and the hundred men that were with him came to the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they had, uh, but uh, newly set the watch and they blew the trumpets and break the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets, break the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in the right to blow with all. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and their Gideon. The first watch was from 6 to 10 p.m. The middle watch was 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. And the morning watch from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. So they've just set the new watch. Uh, the, the retiring guards would still be probably milling around their tents. Trumpets blared, smoldering embers flash into flame, and then the yelling, a crescendo of these guys yelling. Uh, and that shook them up. Uh, there's speculation by some scholars that they were used to having a, a torch for every thousand men or something, but that's speculation. In any case, they stood every man in his place, round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. You're dealing with 135,000, but they are superstitious, frightened people that also fight among themselves. If you know anything about the tribal kinds of environment they come from, the 300 blew the trumpets, and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and, and throughout all the hosts, and the host fled to Bethshitta in Zerath, and the border of Abel Mechelah unto Tabith. They're obviously shook up. And the confusion, the Midianites even are starting to kill each other. They quickly realized the only way to survive is to flee. And so they took off southeast on an old caravan route with the Israelite army pursuing them. And uh, by the way, uh, you may not, this may not ring familiar to you, but Abel Mechelah is the place where Elisha was living when Elijah uh, called him to be his protege. If you remember your your history uh, of the northern kingdom. But there's an interesting, before we go on with the battle and what comes on, there's an interesting spiritual analogy here. If you're a Christian, you have the light of Christ in you, right? God would have that light come forth and shine to glorify Him. But what prevents it is that it's buried in an earthen vessel. 
And the only way the light will shine is for that vessel to be broken. If you see someone that is bearing the light of Christ, it's probably on the heels of brokenness. Brokenness. You can say, gee, that's kind of a pun. Yes, I guess it is. But Paul indulges in that pun, if you will, in 2 Corinthians 4. In the interest of time, uh, we won't, won't get into it here, but you might put in your notes 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 12, that you can't really serve Him until you're broken. I taught the Bible for 25 years at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I've studied the Bible since I was a teenager. But those of you that have known me through most of my ministry, I think understand our ministry changed in 1989 and 90 because we went through that dark valley. If you want to understand that valley, you should get uh, any of our publications on that, but especially if you're serious about that. The, the, the third book of a trilogy called Faith in the Night Seasons, where God calls you to intimacy by putting you through a dark valley, where it would seem that even he is not listening. The dark night of the soul, the dark night of the spirit, these terms are in the literature. Very little literature really written about this area. Lights in the vessel can't be released until the vessel is broken. Just a suggestion to, as an analogy that comes from this uh, literal example, but let's move on. Starting verse 23, the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of Manasseh and pursued after Midianites. These guys that were among the 32,000 are now rallied by this victory and they're in the, ch- they're joined the chase. So this is enlarging the army. And they're also going to be joined by a very proud tribe of Ephraim. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara and Jordan. Ephraim is the biggest tribe, the dominant tribe, a very proud tribe that dominates the, uh, the northern region, north of Judea. Bethbara is just mentioned in passing here, but it's an interesting place for two reasons. Uh, it's the place that Joshua first crossed the Jordan on the conquest of the land. And you remember he set up 12 stones uh, as a symbol of the 12 tribes when he did that. When you get to the New Testament in John chapter 1, who's baptizing at that very spot? John the Baptist. And when the Pharisees come to check out what's going on here, he says, who weren't you guys to flee from the wrath to come? You say you're, you're sons of Abraham. God can raise up from these stones men of Abraham. He's probably pointing to the very stones that Joshua had set up as a monument. But that all takes place at Beth Bar. But anyway, they're going to go by Beth Bar. In fact, they're going to go way down, way east of the Dead Sea. They're going to really chase these guys for a bit. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They slew Oreb on the rock Oreb. It's named after him. <laughs> and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb and pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So they bring these heads. Oreb means raven, by the way, and Zeb means wolf. So these guys are named as warriors, it would seem. But uh, they lost their heads. So now we're in chapter 8. Chapter 7 is an exciting chapter because we see this very famous uh, whittling down of the the attack team. And and, uh, we see this 300 farmers uh, route 135,000 professionals. Uh, It's a famous, famous event. But perhaps the most sobering lessons come from chapter 8. 
You can win the war and lose the victory. And that is the pattern of most of us. When is our most vulnerable time? It's not when we're challenged. It's just after we think we've won. Man, did we get through that? Great. Be careful. That's when we're vulnerable. So let's take a look at this. Andrew Bonar, I love his commentaries. He published in 1846 a number of great commentaries. He makes this one. Let's be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. This is a good demonstration of it. Judges chapter 8. And the men of Ephraim said unto him, Why hast thou served us thus, that thou callest us not, when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. They're upset. You know, why weren't they called? In Angola, I understand, there's 20 million landmines. It's after the war that are waiting there to maim somebody or kill somebody. In uh, Afghanistan, there's 10 million landmines. In Cambodia, about 4.5 million. See, the wars may be over, but the dangers are still there. And uh, spiritual landmines lay for us too, even after the battle. And that's what Bonar is getting at to get at here. Instead of rejoicing with the victory, the, here's the tribe of Ephraim. They're complaining about the strategy. Now, Ephraim's a very proud group of people. We're going to read, see, about, see them all through the Scripture. As very, in fact, often the term is used idiomatically of the entire northern kingdom. They're the largest tribe, second only to Judah. And Gideon was himself was from Manasseh, which theoretically is the brother tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim and Manasseh being the two uh, children of Joseph that Jacob adopts. Uh, they were the sons of Joseph, but they were also adopted as not just grandsons, but sons of Jacob to replace Reuben and Simeon, who had discredited themselves. And uh, Manasseh was the firstborn of the two. But uh, Jacob reversed the birth order when he blessed them, if you remember that from Genesis 41 and 48 and all of that. So Ephraim is very proud, and here's Gideon, who's from what should have been a brother tribe to Ephraim, and they're really upset. Ephraim was insulted because Gideon hadn't called them for the battle initially. They had assisted Ehud back there in chapter 3 and Deborah and Barak in chapter 5, you may recall. But see, that was no guarantee that they would follow a farmer in battle. These were proud guys. And so it was probably wise for Gideon not to call them in the first place anyway. A proud tribe would have been incensed when Gideon asked the fearful to leave. They would have been hard to swallow the idea, we're going to just have 300 that we're going to go with. I mean, they, you know, you can see they, they wouldn't probably buy into that program. But they were on hand for the mopping up, and that's uh, what really counted. Once the enemy was on the run, they needed all the help they could to really capitalize on the victory. Now, Gideon could have used his authority and his popularity by now uh, to put them in their place. I mean, he understand the situation that Gideon's in. He is the, the gorilla on the block right now. I mean, his, he, him and his 300 freed the nation of these marauders. So he's Mr. Hero. And he could have just leaned on that, but he did something very smart. Proverbs 15, verse 1 says, A soft answer turneth away wrath, and grievous words stir up anger. And Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. And this is one of the places where Gideon plays it pretty cool. He said, Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? What he's in effect saying, aren't this, isn't this a fabulous achievement by you guys? Vastly outclass anything that my guys from my hometown? That's what he's saying. He's saying the grapes of Ephraim versus the vintage. That's just, he's using that just poetically, but that what you guys have done, 
way outclasses what me and our guys from our little town have done. He compliments him. He says, God hath delivered in your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated toward him <laughs> when he had said that. So he cooled it off. So I'd say that's pretty cool. Ben Franklin, is, uh, in his uh, Poor Richard's Almanac, said, Take this remark from Richard, poor and lame. Whatever is begun in anger ends in shame. Ronald Reagan said the equivalent thing. He said, There's no limit to what a man can accomplish if he doesn't care who gets the credit. So, so well done there, Gideon. Verse 16, God hath delivered in your hands the princes of, uh, of Midian. See, Oreb and Zeb were not the top kings. We're going to get to them in a minute. But they were, they were heavy guys and, and important guys. Now, by the way, we're going to discover when we get to chapter 12 that the pride of Ephraim is going to get them in trouble again with Jephthah. And Jephthah does not handle it as cool as Gideon did, by the way. So Gideon came to Jordan, passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him faint, yet pursuing them. So Gideon and his 300 are still at the vanguard. They're chasing the, uh, the main Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. And knowing that if he catch the kings, that would cripple and, and break the power of the rest. And so they crossed the Jordan eastward to Sukkoth in Gad. Now you, remember, you have to remember here, when they settled the land, two and a half tribes stayed east of the Jordan. They saw pretty neat, what we call the Golan Heights today, really, but... They thought it was great for grazing and so forth. Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh split. Half of them stayed with the group that decided to stay east of Jordan, and the, the other half went in the land. That's what you'll often hear about the half-tribes of Manasseh. And the ones that were uh, decided to stay in the east, Joshua challenged them. He said, we, they agreed to fight in the conquest, but once the conquest was over, they wanted to go home and they wanted that land for themselves, and Joshua agreed to that. It's probably a mistake, by the way, because they never really joined the group on the west of the Jordan. They're also the first group to get taken captive by the Assyrians later and so on. And uh, so it, it, it probably wasn't a cool move. But anyway, um, they're across on the east side of the Jordan looking for help. They're exhausted. They're faint. They're chasing the enemy. They need food. They need, you know, part of an army is logistics. And they're looking for, uh, they were faint, and yet they're going after the enemy. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. For I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. This is a high-risk proposition he's asking. He's asking for help, and he certainly was entitled to it. They're supposed to be part of Israel, and they're delivering Israel from these marauders. But it's also a high-risk proposition because if they can't win, anybody that helped them is going to get hung up. Exposes them to reparations if they don't win. And so the prince of Zuccoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thy hand that we should give bread unto thine army? In other words, it's a speck. You want us to help you on speck. It's, a, it's an expression of skepticism. Are these guys in your hand? If they're not in your hand, you know, this is, this is, this is rough. They fail to help them. You know, this is a real violation of hospitality in the Middle East anyway. Even the, almost all the tribes in the Middle East have a, have a tradition of hospitality to strangers, let alone their, their, their relatives. And this hospitality is also a ministry of the church, by the way. And you can go into Romans 12 and 1 Timothy 5 and Hebrews 13, 1 Peter 4. And even Christ in Matthew 25 talks about extending hospitality to his brethren and so forth. They blow it here. Gideon says then in verse 7, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zilmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of wilderness and with briars. Whew. 
You know, Gideon's feeling his oats here, isn't he? Huh? And the skepticism of the of the Sukkoth is going to get uh, <laughs> properly rewarded. By, I might mention too, if you may remember from Deborah and all that, that they didn't send troops to Deborah and Barak when they had their showdown. So these guys are sort of sideliners. And uh, they not only didn't help, but by not helping, they be, they're aiding and abetting the enemy. They uh, responded very impudently. So, uh, and he went up and thence to Penuel, another town up there, and he spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered him. And he spake also to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. And uh, so, again, they didn't help. They were aiding and abetting the enemy. Both these cities, by the way, are east of the Jordan in the region, the tribal region of Gad. And uh, the, the curse on them is very similar to the curse on Meroz and Deborah's time back in chapter 5, but we don't have to go back and all that. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor, and their hosts with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of all the hosts of the children of the east. For there fell 120,000 men that drew the sword. So they only have a, these two kings have only a remnant. Still a formidable force, though. Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbeha and smote the host, for the host was secure. At least thought they were secure. I believe the word in Hebrew was patash, which means in false confidence. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and discomfited the host. And by the way, Kirk Karkor is believed to be near Wadi Sirhan, which is well east of the Dead Sea. So that's a long way south and east of what we normally think of as we look at a map of Israel. The word discomfited in the King James is a translation of Herod, which is to tremble or quake or move about, be afraid, be startled, be terrified, to drive to terror, if you will. So they apparently got a surprise attack and they captured the two kings and routed their army. So Gideon, uh, son of Joash, returned from the battle before the sun was up, and he caught a young man of Sukkoth and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Sukkoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. So they found a young man, providentially somehow, and this young guy uh, described to him the, uh, the uh, gave him the names, if you will, of the 77 leaders that had refused to help him and his army. Hmm. He came unto the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thy hand, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? So he's rubbing their nose in it, because here they are in chains or whatever. He took the elders of the city and the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. <laughs> you can't improve on the subtlety of the King James. Now, scholars are a little divided as to what that really involved, because the language isn't crisp. Uh, the general belief, though, is that he didn't just beat them up a little bit with briars. Uh, the belief is, is that he thrashed them like you do with wheat on a thrashing floor with briars. They were uh, over. They were history. And he beat down the Tower of Penuel and slew the men of that city. So there again, he's, he's, uh, he's played it rough. And by the way, he taught the men of Sukkoth. The word in the Hebrew is yada. I always think of yada, yada, yada. We use that expression. Well, in the Hebrew, it's, <laughs> it means made to know, like forcibly. So, so uh, I think that's kind of interesting. Anyway, he makes good his threat to Penuel also. The tower is probably a fortress where the people could uh, seek refuge when under attack. 
And uh, some like like the Tower of Shechem in chapter... There's two towers, Tower of Shechem, Tower of Thebes, which we'll get into for other reasons uh, next week. It may sound to us like he was awfully severe, but we need to recognize that they were risking their lives to deliver Israel, uh, and these guys were traitors. These were these guys were that could have helped and, and declined to out of out of their own self interest. I could go on and talk about traitors in our time, but that'll get politically sensitive. Meanwhile, these two kings are in front of him after all this other carnage. Then said he unto Zeba and Zalmunna, "What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor?" Now, what you need to understand is that Gideon had his own axe to grind with Zeba and Zalmunna because. Um, they had killed his brothers at Tabor. Now, we don't know whether it was part of this action. We suspect, rather, it was one of the previous annual raids that they did every year. And this is one of the reasons that Gideon was hiding in the wine press when God first found him. They were used to this annual uh, thrash as these guys came through and stole all their crops and food and so forth. Now, according to Mosaic law, the family was called to avenge crimes like this, killing those that were responsible for murder. That's in Deuteronomy 19, verse 6. It's extensively discussed in Numbers 35, 9 through 34. Now, these guys were not only murderers, they were the enemies of Israel. Now, they attempt to flatter him, but flattery didn't work. Flattery is a good thing to taste, but a bad thing to swallow. They answered and said, As thou art... Were they? Each one resembled the children of a king. They were trying to build up the, his brothers. No, he, they murdered him. They're not going to get away with this. And he said, They were my brethren, and even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye have saved them alive, I would not slay you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, he turns to his son, says, Up and slay them. Now, why was he doing that? For two reasons. To a soldier, his manner of death is a matter of his reputation and pride. And uh, we see that in a number of places. Um, Abimelech, in the next chapter, he did not want to die from the hand of a woman. King Saul didn't want to die at the hands of the Philistines, you may recall. Now, for a child, untried person, to kill a king would be a humiliation for the king. And it also, if the kid had, had stepped up to this, it would have made him get made his reputation for the rest of his life because he would have been the one that killed these bad kings. See? But he hesitates. He hasn't got the moxie to step up with this. The youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon, talking to Gideon, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. They're anxious for Gideon to do it for two reasons. One is there's, there's less humiliation in having a warrior like Gideon kill him. Also, they knew Gideon was an experienced swordsman, and he wouldn't muck it up. And so they asked him to, and he arose and slew Zeba and Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on their camel's necks. Now, here's one of those interesting times. Every once in a while as I'm preparing for something like this, uh, no matter how, time, how often you go through a passage, somehow the Holy Spirit always leaves a surprise or two in your path just for fun. I'm convinced the Holy Spirit has a terrific sense of humor. He took away the ornaments that were on the camel's necks. Apparently these camels had a chain with some kind of... And the ornaments were gold, and they're going to be very valuable later just because of the weight of the gold. Gideon's going to end up with about 43 pounds of gold. It's a lot of gold. But the word ornament in the Hebrew 
is an extremely provocative word. The word for ornaments is saharon. It's the ornaments in the shape of a crescent moon. Well, that just blew me away because you start putting this together, you realize these Ishmaelites that we're dealing with, Ishmaelites used here as a connotative term, we're going to get into that in verse 24. They worshipped Al-Ilah, the moon god. When Abraham was called out of the Ur of the Chaldees, long before this, what people worshipped in the region was the moon god. In Assyria, he was called Sin. Strange pun, no relation to our old English word sin, meaning, you know, to, to miss the mark. The word sin in Assyrian uh, meant, meant the moon god. One of the kings was Sennacherib. Sin multiplies his brothers. That's what it means. So they call the moon god sin. In Arabia, they called him Al-Ilah, which later becomes Allah. But uh, the moon god. And uh, the crescent moon, to this very day, adorns every mosque in the world. Several thousand, I guess, in the United States. The thousand that are in England, they have the, they all have the crescent moon on there. Islam did not begin with Muhammad. It started long before Muhammad. Muhammad came along and, and packaged it into a monotheistic form. If you look at the flags of many of the Middle Eastern country, they celebrate the crescent moon. Even Iran is a double sword, double moon motif on there. And of course, we've got all this background and sort of all that. We have briefing packages, several on these various things. So I think that's kind of interesting that we have in the, we're going to, when we get later in the book of Judges, you're going to be shocked to discover how relevant the book of Judges is to today's dilemma in the Middle East. We took on the study of the book of Judges because we felt it was, you know, to continue our going through the Bible. But I have to tell you, I'm startled to realize as I get through it how timely it is. As we get more of the book under our belt, we'll do some summary maps and show you some things that are absolutely astonishing in terms of what they've left undone there has put the seeds of their problems today. I might mention, by the way, this term Ishmaelites, so we don't stumble on that. That's a term here that's used connotatively for nomads. It's not limited, the way it's used here, to the traceable descendants of Ishmael. And, of course, as you know, the Ishmaelites believe it was Ishmael, not Isaac, that, that Abraham was supposed to have offered and so on. But um, and, I, and let me just demonstrate that for you. The Bedouins, you certainly would consider Arabs. But the Bedouins are descendants of, from Keturah, not Hagar, a different wife of Abraham. Ishmael came from Hagar. The Bedouins and the Midianites and others came from Keturah, not Hagar. So they're sons of Abraham, but through a different wife altogether, there's no relationship at all to even Hagar, let alone the promise and so on. So, But the term Ishmaelites here is being used in a, in a connotative sense. But, okay, then the men of Israel said to Gibeon, see, they've got it, it's over now. They, they've won the contact, they've killed the kings, uh, they are, he has delivered them from this horrible abuse of the years. So they said to Gideon, rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. They're not only rewarding him, they're asking for a dynasty. Not, that, not just you, Gideon, but your son and your son's son. They're, they're expecting him to accept a ruling dynasty. So he's a pretty popular guy. This is not only a step to reward him, it's also a step, a natural step on their part, to somehow unify the tribes, to mobilize them against further abuse downstream. 
Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. This is one of his better moments. But you need to understand that every Jew knew that the mercy seat in the tabernacle is the throne of God from which he ruled in the middle of his people. In Psalm 80, verse 1, Thou that dwellest between the cherubim shine forth. Psalm 99, 1, The Lord reigneth, let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. You can go, there's over a dozen places in the Old Testament where God is identified as he that dwells between the cherubims or above the cherubims. And that's a reference to the mercy seat. And uh, there's a number of us that believe, cautiously, but we believe that the mercy seat is going to be the throne of the Messiah when he sits enthroned on Mount Zion in the millennium. And that's one reason we're so intrigued with the whole issue of what on earth is in Ethiopia. They've been protecting a relic there for 2,400 years. And uh, they believe it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is not the relevant thing. Jeremiah 3.16 says, it'll no longer be remembered nor come to mind. But the relevant thing is the mercy seat, solid gold. And uh, Isaiah 18, and there's about, if, if it is, we don't know, but if it is the, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat in Ethiopia, they believe they're to deliver it to the Messiah when uh, he, he reigns in Zion. If they have it and if they do that, it turns out that seems to pull together two dozen passages in the Old Testament. And not only that, but it really explains Acts chapter 8 and the Ethiopian treasure and all that, which is another study, but I mentioned it in passing. This whole idea, any knowledgeable Jew knows that it's God that needs to rule. And this is, this is one of the key lessons here, is that the Lord that should rule over you, not man, not elders, not a pastor, not people. People who are in ministry are to serve and assist, not to rule. And 2 Corinthians one twenty four is one of the many passages that nails that. See, one of the key themes in the book of Judges is there's no king in Israel. And the writer almost seems to be setting the stage for Samuel and, and Saul and, and David and so forth. Moses had warned that Israel would one day uh, seek a king in Deuteronomy 4 and 14 and 17 and Exodus 19 and elsewhere. And it's, it's tragic. What other nation had the Creator Himself as their king? And yet people ask, well, of course, in, in, when you get to 1 Samuel 8, we'll ask for a king. And God told Samuel to grant the request. And, uh, and everything that Moses and Samuel warned the people about happened. But in any case, Gideon here in verse uh, 23 does pretty well. <laughs> he turns down the dynasty opportunity. But boy, he sure sets up his retirement program. And Gideon said to them, I would desire a request of you that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. For they had gold earrings because they were the Ishmaelites. They actually had taken all these things from the Ishmaelites. They just taken spoil of 135,000 troops who had camel ornaments, whatever. And uh, so he desired that the man, the earrings that they'd taken, and that may be more of a generic term of some kind, but in any case, it would be the golden earrings that they'd give it to him. And they answered, we will willingly give them. They spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand seven hundred shekels of gold beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camel's necks, which I guess also were gold. And they're talking about 43 pounds of gold plus whatever he'd taken from the two kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. But he's not through. <laughs> Making a mess here. Gideon uh, made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in uh, Ophrah. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it. 
which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Now, we're not quite sure what this ephod is all about. Some scholars speculate that it may have been some kind of embellished version of what the high priest wore. But he wasn't even a priest, so that doesn't quite fit. Or it may have been some other kind of, uh, of thing that became an idol of some kind. And in any case, uh, it was against God's law, from Exodus 20, verse 4 to 6. And it eventually caused him and the people to stumble. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness 40 years in the days of Gideon. That's great news. For 40 years they have peace. Except, that's the last time you'll find a period of peace mentioned in the book of Judges. There's more adventures coming, but the remaining judges really uh, ruled locally, and their uh, tenures were rather short. The subsequent adventures of Jephthah and Samson um, did not seem to produce any form of uh, even an interim peace or even a delay in the nation's decline. The nation's on the downslope and getting worse. So, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And on top of that, he had a concubine that was in Shechem. She also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Concubine was sort of a junior wife. She usually stayed living with her parents, and he would just visit from time to time. But in any case, he's got uh, three score and ten sons of his wives. You don't know how many, but there's obviously a bunch of them. And he also has a, a concubine who has a son. And his wealth, he obviously is very wealthy from all of this, but that did not prevent his family from becoming a real mess. Sixty-nine of his 70 sons were killed by their half-brother, who himself was slain by a woman dropping a stone on his head. Throughout the Bible, men that had more than one wife multiply their headaches. <laughs> now you say, they had, in many places in the Bible you have many wives. We do that today, but we do them in series rather than parallel, you know. So, so. If Gideon had practiced, Matthew 6.33, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a lot would, not only his life, but Israel's life would have been very different. Very different. So Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age. He was buried in the sepulcher of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abezerites, which is the, his hometown. It came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, the children of Israel turned again and went a whoring after Balaam and made Baal Bereth their god. The children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. Tragic, tragic stuff. You know, we had some friends of ours, I remember many, many years ago when the Ten Commandments was you know, a popular movie that goes back some years, earlier than most of you remember, I'm sure. Some of you are... Uh, too young to remember that. Some of you are too old to remember that. But uh, <laughs> We had some friends that saw the movie, and they, they were quite impressed with it. But they, what they couldn't get over is how, after all those plagues, all those miracles, the water turning to blood and this and that and all that, and the parting of the Red Sea and so forth, that they still turned, wanted to go back to you know, Egypt. They, they couldn't understand that. And here again, we have that same feeling. 
Here, the, the, this incredible deliverance from the Midianites, you'd think, would have had some durability in terms of building their faith, right? You can't understand that. And yet, look at us. You can take the, these events, take the events since then, and we should have a moment-by-moment awe of God. We maybe from time to time have a moment or two where we sort of, wow, God, that's great. But how rare that is, those are rare moments we can probably number. I mean, how often do we really do that? I mean, really, really do that. Or do we really live in a moment-by-moment awareness of the majesty and the involving mercy and grace of God? And we have so much more to lean on than they did. Look at them. And there, but for the grace of God, go us. And remember, not the Lord their God, nor delivered, who had delivered them out of the hands of their enemies on every side. Look at us in this country. Talk about a people that should be blessed. And we disparage our heritage. We tolerate those that besmirch it. We should be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. So that ends chapter 8. Now next time, we're going to take a look at Abimelech and the presumption of uh, self-promotion. It's really tragic. Uh, you know, in some respects, there's a lot of things you point out about Gideon that he did pretty well on, but there's a, it's staggering to look at Gideon as the uh, missed opportunity. He had an opportunity to, to bring about a real reformation in the land, a revival. And instead, he used the occasion for his own personal profit. It's instructive, I think, to contrast Gideon and Abraham. Remember in Genesis 14, Abraham had 318 servants of his house trained. He had his own army. He was a rich guy. And he went after Lot, after all the, you know, the, the war with the nine kings, the five versus four and all that. And he, they, they ended up taking Lot captive. And when Abraham fought out, he took his guys and went after to get his nephew. And after that incredible victory, he, Abraham had a similar victory to what Gideon did here. Um, remember, Abraham took nothing for himself. But he made sure that everybody else got their share of the spoils. Gideon did the opposite here, didn't he? Remember, he, uh, Abraham especially refused to take anything from the king of Sodom. It's all in Genesis 14. And instead, Abraham did what? He worshipped Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a type of Christ. And in everything Abraham did, he gave glory to God, the Lord of heaven and earth. It's an interesting exercise to take the time when you get a chance to go through Genesis 14 and contrast it to... Uh, to Judges 8, and contrast Gideon with all his successes, and Abraham, and how they dealt with victory. And a very, very different scenario. Now, next time we're going to be in chapter 9, you want to study Abimelech. I have to warn you, it's one of the longest chapters and one of the most depressing, the book of Judges. We're going to see three specific phases in his political career. It'll be very instructive as we continue our review of God's Word. Uh, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Well, Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Gideon. We pray, Father, that the lessons not be wasted. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see how this farmer, emerging from doubt, became a leader by following what you told him to do, Father. We thank you for his positive example.
Help us, Father, to realize that you don't deal in numbers, Father, but you do deal in victory. But, Father, we also would pray that you would help us to appropriate to ourselves the negative lessons here, Father. Help us, Father, to realize that as we adorn ourselves, we're forfeiting an opportunity to bring honor to your kingdom. Help us, Father, to realize that you're what it's all about. We do pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a hunger and a passion for your word. That you would draw us ever more deeply into your word. That you would illuminate that path before each of us. That each of us might clearly hear your call for what you would have of us in these days. That we might be more fruitful stewards, Father. That we might be more pleasing in your sight as we commit ourselves this night into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.